Stefan, what's up, my good man? Not much. How you doing? Doing well. Thank you for making time for Boz and I. Great to see you guys. Uh, likewise. I'm going to read off your credentials and embarrass you, just in case you know, everyone's watching. If, if they're on YouTube, I'll put them in. They can see it there. But if they're listening to this in an audio format, they'll have no idea. Why should I listen to this joker? So well, anybody- hold on. Let's, before you do that, Pat, I just want to say that, in my opinion, I think that Stefan Rocher is one of the ultimate gray men in the sense Agreed. that I think you fly so far under the radar, but you have such uh, an amazing list of things that you've been a part of and accolades and all that kind of stuff. And you're probably not going to self-promote at all. So this is important that you guys actually listen to Pat about what this man has uh, done with his life. So, yeah. I would agree. What, a, what an intro. Here we go. So <laughs> you started your career as a strength and conditioning coach at UCLA way back in 1999, pre-2000s followed by stints at Indiana University, University of San Diego, then back to UCLA, then some time also with the U.S. Navy. Finest Navy in the world, by the way. <laughs> Introduced to CrossFit in 2003 by Mr. Mike Bergner. Got your... No big deal. Right, no big deal. Name dropping there. Got your L1 in 2004. And then from 2007 to 2014... You were part of the you know, seminar staff, L1 instructor for CrossFit, and then eventually joined the games team for several years. And so, yes, why we have you here today is specifically for your collegiate strength and conditioning background, because it's a constant question of, you know, do universities do it? Do they not do it? Does it have a stigma? Is it actually effective? What happens in the on-season versus the off-season? How much is too much? And... That's more your world than mine. So, so maybe. Well, and, and Pat, can I add something to that yeah. too? I think broadly, and this is what I'm really interested in. There's kind of this weird thing that happens, in my opinion, when you have like an athlete, quote unquote, and then normal people, and like for some reason, the training that one of those parties engages in is supposed to be radically different than the other in the public perception. And so, I'm really curious, Stefan, as to whether or not you think that is actually the case or not but we can get into that as we yeah go let's let's that. make sure we circle back to that so maybe yeah. maybe stefan we can just start with unless you want to take it in a different direction i'm going to let you largely guide this one but what would you say is like the current landscape what does it the current landscape look like regarding strength and conditioning at the collegiate level for their big sports good question <laughs> good question it 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 varies greatly there's a broad spectrum um there's guys out there like uh, like a Josh Everett, uh, an Ethan Reeve, who um, I learned from and Josh learned from at uh, he was at Ohio University. He's at Wake Forest, who you would walk into their weight room and you'd say, this is strength and conditioning. There's cleans and snatches and all that stuff going on. A lot of calisthenics, pull ups, push ups, air squats, uh, pistols, all that stuff's going on. You walk into a, a, another weight room and it could be in the same conference. It could be a high level school division one, one of the power conferences. And you think you're in a PT clinic. There's, you what know, do you mean by that there's Swiss balls and uh, BOSU balls and isolation and machines. And you're not sure a whole lot of work gets it done in here more than, than rehab gets done in there. And, and one of the funny things is <clears throat> The schools that can recruit the best athletes oftentimes don't train them the way we we think. Look, this this is a great athlete. He's going to be awesome at this stuff. I mean, this guy's going to squat the house. He's going to 
pick up cleans real fast and move a ton of weight. A lot of the, I shouldn't say a lot of the schools, but some of those schools have gravitated towards, you know, where they're doing, uh, they're doing like a, an assessment to start. And then they get a little program that fixes uh, these little inflexibilities or these little mobility patterns that they didn't find were perfect. And, and balances. It, it really, yeah, it really looks like you look at the full program and here's your, your sheet of what you're going to be doing uh, today in the weight room. And you're like, is, is this anything but a warm up and a cool down? Like, where's the actual do, work? Do you think that some of that has to do, and I've thought about this a lot over the years, you know, there are some athletes that the caliber of what they can do is so good and so advanced when they come in that it's almost, it's not that it's irrelevant what they do in the weight room, but it's like the school and the program that they affix to that person really doesn't have as much impact as maybe they would like to think it does. And so for that reason, they can kind of get away with something that's not Absolutely. as thought through or not as, you know, not really including the things that you would think would push the needle forward. And they just kind of rest on the natural raw ability that these athletes already bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. You're, I would say that you're never or rarely going to train athletes to outperform the real genetic freaks out there. Mm. The guys who, you know, the, the schools are winning titles are doing it through the recruitment battle. Well, so, so maybe a better question then, if you're talking about strength and conditioning is if you look at a program what are the programs that don't have access to the raw talent? What are they doing with the kids that they get bringing that they, that they bring in uh, to try to close the gap with the big name schools that have access to like a better recruiting process, you know? So w what do those programs do to shore things up? Cause that I think is where the real difference is going to be made. Right? Absolutely. And that's where it's cool. And that's, I was always in the, um, except at, at UCLA, um, you know, when I was at USD, when I was at Indiana university, it was, we were the bottom trying to catch up to the, the big guys who could recruit better than we could. So how do we get our, our raw talent, to compete with them. And those are the schools. I think about schools like in the Midwest, the, the Mac conference, Ohio university, Cincinnati schools like that, that have great programs. Um, that's where you walk into a weight room. You're like, this is a, a real weight room. This is, this is work being done in here. We're seeing athletes squat. Now I'll, I'll say something like, a um, an Alabama, they, squat racks all over the place. I mean, those guys, you watch some videos, uh, from, and that's a, that's a perennial power and they get the best athletes there. So it's not like a, a flat mm -hmm. rule across sure. it, it just, it, There's just different trends in strength and conditioning, but, um, the, I would say the, the, um, lower your talent level, raw talent that you can recruit, that you can attract to your program, the more your program will shift towards what we consider a traditional strength and conditioning program would be a, a, a general thought I'd have. Mm. And do you notice a lot of, uh, re sorry, Pat, I keep, oh, cutting go ahead. Off. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Do, do you notice a lot of regional differences like that? Like you, like you cited Alabama and they have, you know, squat racks all over the place and stuff like that. Like, is that also a factor? Do you notice that within a huge country like the United States that there are some regional kind of, I don't know, legacies as far as what they're going to be engaged in in the weight room? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess just from my limited experience, so I was in the Midwest with Indiana and I was at Ohio University. Uh, I've never been, I've never worked at a school in the in the Southeast, but um, I've had family down there and been familiar with programs. Um, the, the, a lot of the power football schools in those areas, Midwest, Southeast, Texas, you'll see traditional strength and conditioning. Mm-hmm. I think because of the football tradition, they started doing it so long ago when strength and conditioning was strength and conditioning that they've carried that forward. When you say uh, traditional, you mean doing the good stuff? Yeah. It says, yeah. So back then if, if a school, so in the, in the seventies and eighties, if a school wanted a strength coach, they went and found a power lifter or they found uh, an, okay. a strength athlete, an Olympic lifter or uh, a track athlete and track athletes back then did a lot of lifting. So those were the people who were influencing those programs. And that, that has stuck around now uh, out, out West, you'll get a little bit more of what I say, the blending of strength and conditioning and, uh, and PT. And that's just a generalization from, from what I've seen. And it also varies across sports. You know, football is a traditional power sport where those guys get in and they lift. It's kind of a culture in that sport. I coach baseball and baseball is all over the map, all over the map. You have some junior colleges and, and universities where it is, they're doing cleans and they're doing, um, you know, heavy squats and, and, uh, you know, all the types of lifts that you would, you would consider in a, uh, in a strength and conditioning program. And then you'll go all the way over to where they don't do many of those lifts. They do maybe a select few, a trap bar, deadlift, a front squat, um, some type of, uh, RDL. And then the rest is managed around, uh, imbalances, uh, shoulder mm-hmm. care, arm care, that kind of stuff. I'm curious to dive into something specific like baseball. Cause you and I have spoken several times about this offline but before we get there i want to circle back to something you said from my own curiosity when you said not all but some schools might recruit these tremendously insanely gifted athletes and then not really for lack of a better way to say it train them that hard in the gym is that potentially through ignorance and by that i mean if you could turn a phenomenal athlete into a 10 percent better athlete why wouldn't you or is it don't you dare damage our, you know, moneymaker that's going to put butts in the seats. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with the culture that's instilled with that team. So if, if a, a team at a university, the culture within that team is that we recruit these great guys, but they kind of run the show. Like they, you know, these guys are the top, they're going to go pro. So think of a basketball player who's going to be there one year. He's going to come in, he's going to dominate uh, score 30 points a game and just be awesome. Uh, but then, you know, he's going to the NBA. Are we willing to sell, you know, our culture a little bit to bring him in? He kind of tells us what he's going to do when he's here. And then he leaves. If that guy's into lifting, he's going to be great. Awesome. But right. if not, <laughs> yeah, now you have to manage the rest situation. of the program. Yeah. Then it becomes a, a, kind of the psychology of being a strength coach where you meet them halfway, you, you find things that aren't distasteful to them. You know, now the basketball culture, getting those guys to squat heavy, not a lot of them like it. It's just, it's just my experience. I mean, I'm a tall guy. I'm not good at squats, but I know how valuable they are. So I'll do them. A lot of these guys, you have to manage that. Okay. We'll lunge instead of squat that. I mean, every strength coach has been through that with an elite player where it's finding 
where I can meet them and get some kind of program, get some kind of work done. And that's really cool because yeah, I don't know. I, I think what you just said there, that meeting halfway, I think is so valuable in a general sense because people tend to have this idea that there's uh, a magic sauce, a secret program that equals gains. And what you just said dis dispelled that pretty succinctly, you know, like you have to find a compromise most of the time. And yet, you know, presumably it's still going to be of benefit to, to engage in this. So can you speak a little bit to, uh, to that? Like this, this mindset that you have to do something a specific way in order to get outcomes, or you have to do something a specific way in order to optimize. Has that been your experience? No, not at all. <clears throat> and I think the best lesson and the best way I learned that through CrossFit was scaling. So there's so many ways to scale something <clears throat> already. Someone is, for some reason needs to adjust what you've programmed for the whole class or the whole team or the whole group. And there was always that sentence in scaling, whatever you can do to preserve the stimulus. So mm -hmm. if you think in a broad sense, I've got this tall six, nine athlete who weighs 195 pounds, you know, you can imagine the angles he's displaying when he's squatting and he doesn't like it. Maybe he's got some back pain and some knee pain because of the nature of the sport he plays. Well, now if I put him in lunging positions, walking lunges or reverse lunges, things like that, all of a sudden it's much more comfortable for him. But to me, a lunge is still very similar to a squatting movement pattern. I don't even argue for an athlete now that I'm working single leg, it's more specific to um, his sport and we'll transfer over and we can have that discussion with him. And I think he'll see the value of it that every time he runs or he's playing defense and he's going from leg to leg, you know, as we, as we work single leg strength, it'll apply better, better to the floor form. And so there is no, I've never had one program that I didn't amend that just worked for everybody and got them exactly what I wanted. It was always, here's where I'm starting. This is my basic template because I'm thinking in movement patterns and, and qualities, athletic qualities that I want to enhance, like the 10 general physical skills. And then I go from there. And within a group of 10, 20, 30, a hundred, like a football team, there's always going to be so many changes, so many, so many amendments in there. Now, let, let me flip that on you a little bit. So that's really great that you as the coach have that mentality and that you're so willing to kind of meet people where they are. I think that's exactly what needs to be happening with a coach. How do you deal with that on the other end? Or do you have to uh, deal with that when you have an athlete that sees something on paper and they're like, this is what I have to do no matter what, even if it's a bit of a square peg round hole situation? How do you, how do you bring them around and convince them that, hey, you know what, just because it's written this way doesn't mean that this is the only uh, application of this. Uh, so that's the psychology of coaching and getting to know your guys and having them trust you. I would say out of all, if you watched me coach um, a group, so I have a group, of, let's say it's my 35 baseball guys, they're all in there lifting. Most of my interactions with the athletes during that lifting time are very short. One word cues, a hand in a, in a spot that I want them to fix. Just very, very short interactions. So I'm trying to hit everybody as much as I can. The longer interactions are exactly what you're talking about, Boz, when whoa, something's got to be changed and I have to have a little explanation for why. And I'll probably give a short explanation why in the moment. Um, I, a kid comes to me and says, hey, my, 
my back's hurting a little bit on this back squat and then and I switch it up or, um, you know, whatever it does. It doesn't always have to be a pain thing, but, um, it, it could just be, you know, me seeing something like he's not moving well. And I know just from seeing it, it's a more complex evolution than, than just me giving a one word command or, or putting him in a different position. I'll make the change. I'll explain why I've said mostly what I'm explaining why is you're doing a good job keep doing what you're doing at the level of effort you are. I'm making this change because I think it's better for you. Trust me. And, and now keep doing that. And then after the workout, that's the kid I go find as they're leaving the weight room or they're stretching. And I have a more involved conversation with them to explain why my, you know, our relationship is I'm here to get you as good for your sport as you can be. This is why I think that that change I made will not only not sacrifice any quality for you. It's going to make you better for your, for your situation. It will improve what you want, um, out of there. And so those are the constant ongoing, uh, conversations you have. I mean, that kind of stuff in season is, is constant. If you think about a, I'll bring up a collegiate baseball team again, playing Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, from February to June every week, there's a ton of stuff that comes up. Yeah. That's a lot of action. And, and really the goals of these guys are to stay strong and to keep the weight on. And these guys will work. These guys will work. And yeah. if you don't kind of steer them in the right direction, they will bury themselves with work because of this huge workload of a season. And I, and if you don't do it right, you end up with a team that's smaller, weaker, and less powerful right when you need them to be at their best. And I think that's where the value of a coach can come in to steer these guys like, Hey man, they have great work ethic. Now I'm going to make it, uh, uh, you know, valuable, efficient, and not, not too much. And, uh, and make it so that you can, you can perform at your best. And, and when they see that, so my first year at UCLA, as an example, it, I came in and I had much less volume during the season than previous coaches and they did pretty well. And I developed a, a level of trust. And then my second year at UCLA, and I, I got to give a caveat here first, strength coaches never take credit for wins. That's, that's the coaching staff. That's the players. The best you can do is not do anything that causes losses. <laughs> so, so, but I was fortunate enough to have these guys trust me. And at least in the strength and conditioning portion, we were able to manage everybody's volume. So they were, they, they were incredibly successful throughout the year and they were bigger and stronger towards the end of the year than they had been with less, with less work. Um, you got to understand how hard it is for an athlete to let go of their pet lifts or, mm -hmm. or their pet routines mm -hmm. to trust someone to do that. And the fact that they did just, uh, you know, it's a great honor for me that, that I was able to, to help them in that way. And, um, and it just speaks to the relationship you have to build. You, you wouldn't do that day one. That takes, that takes a year. That might take two years to build. Uh, but that's, that's the mindset of a strength coach and, and how you, you kind of evolve with your, with your players. And I'm sure it also has to help with this. I mean, that baseball schedule that you just laid out sounds incredibly demanding. So if you have a more resilient athlete that's going to hold up better to a rugged schedule, then yeah, when the when the last bit of the season comes, you're probably going to be hopefully head and shoulders above your your competition. Uh, I want to talk about how you 
would manage, you've got that demanding schedule, you have games, you're tired, are you still training? So we're going to get there. But I have a question that's been eating at me and I've got to throw it out there. And and my preface to this is I never played a collegiate sport. Nowhere near as talented to even sit on the bench. I could maybe carry water to somebody. But, you know, so my, when I think of team sports in my world, I think of just the military, right? That's just where it was. And it's a team sport at its very nature. Some of the things that would not fly for a second seem to fly in collegiate sports and it would drive me bonkers. So, <laughs> so kind of like what you said of meeting the athlete halfway, that's great. That's a nice way to say it. But how does the team, like an actual team, in my opinion anyway, is putting the, the greater good ahead of their own personal initiatives to achieve some sort of objective, right? It's, it's being selfless. It's not being narcissistic or selfish or whatnot. So how does that work when a quote-unquote team has this random superstar come in for one week and goes, I'm going to dictate what happens in the weight room. Uh, I don't like to do that. So you know what? Now we don't do it. And you know what? It's, it's kind of the me show for one year. Is everyone just like, well... I hope we win a lot or, you know, that that culture to me seems really tough to navigate. So, and you've been inserted into that. So how do you take a, a big personality that has their wants and their desires, mix it with the team's wants and desires and get this guy or, or woman to be part of the team while keeping them happy? How the heck do you juggle that? Yeah. I mean, again, you're seeing that being, being a strength coach, the, uh, a small portion is knowing how to teach a clean or a deadlift or a squat. Most of it is, is managing team chemistry and team chemistry is one of the key ingredients to, to winning. And I, I think it's hard to develop a bad team chemistry, like to ruin a team chemistry in the weight room, unless you're a real jerk. I mean, there mm -hmm. have been stories of <laughs> <It's> some possible, <laughs> but like, like we love everything about this school, except we hate lifting, you know, mm -hmm. you don't want to be that guy. It, it's so my goal was always to be the encouraging guy, firm, discipline, mm -hmm. you know, respect for everybody in the weight room, but they should enjoy coming to workouts. They should, mm -hmm. they should love yeah. it. And other than a couple of years with the freshmen at USD, where I had just finished being a police officer and I treated them like they were in the academy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs> um, you know, I think that the guys enjoyed coming because they were, they felt a sense of fulfillment in okay. achieving what they yeah. achieved. So now Go ahead, Bob. I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I feel like that transcends just athletic training. I feel like that's all training that if you set your training up, whatever it happens to be, like, let's say you want to learn to fly a, I don't know, a helicopter, you know, and your training is set up in such a way that you hate it. I mean, good luck, you know, yeah. like you're not going to do it. It's, it's going to be a one way path to eventual washout. And then what do you have to show for it? So I think that's so key. Yeah. So to go back to your question, Pat. So you, you got, you're always taking into account the situation. If you can meet this kid halfway and then he's lifting as part of the group, that's your best scenario. Mm -hmm. I think there where while he's working out, maybe on a different exercise than the other guys are, it's still, he's still in the group doing work and you praise him on his work and you highlight, Hey, yeah, he's working hard. And this guy's working on your right. good job. So Coach Bergner taught me the compliment sandwich 
you know, awesome. That squat looks great. Now, if you could just get a little bit deeper, perfect. You're doing a great job, right? Mm -hmm. Compliment, fix, compliment. And uh, that works great. Um, So would an oversimplification be that you don't want the kids, and I probably shouldn't call them kids, but you, you don't want them to feel like it's just your weight room as the strength and conditioning coach, and you don't want them to feel like it's just theirs. It should be our weight room, right? We're all in here together. We're doing this together. We're we're one force driving forward. Even if Tommy's on a little bit of a different program than Joey over there, like we're all we're all in this, and I'm here to help you and kind of guide you. I guess is the best case scenario. Yeah, I think so. There's definitely rules. Um, so that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> What's that? that doesn't that, sound that, like a lot of fun. Already, I, already, I messed it up. I'm uh, out. Yeah. Rules, I'm out. <laughs> so, you know, putting the equipment, just your basic putting the equipment away, how you treat um, each other in the weight room. Obviously, one of the big things is when uh, male athletes and female athletes are in the weight room together, that's got to be a very respectful situation. Mm-hmm. Um, just your basic rules of decorum, those are here too. And that just sets the the foundation for, okay, we know how to act in here and you, mm-hmm. you do have to teach them that for the first couple of weeks are there. And then from there, yes, now it's a partnership. My job as your strength coach is, uh, to make sure that we are preparing you for your sport. Your job is to prepare yourself as well as you can for your sport, because for yourself, you want to be as good a player as you can be. And also for your team, you want to contribute, uh, in the best way possible. And so if you can build that partnership where the athletes don't feel like this is just an activity they have to do because Mm -hmm. the head coach of their sport said you're, you will lift Monday, Wednesday, Friday at six 30 AM. If you can, I mean, initially that might be their thought like, Oh crap, you know, but if you can change that thought to like, Hey, I'm getting something out of this and I enjoy it. And this guy, I can ask him questions and he, he gives me thoughtful answers or he researches things for me and he's here to help me. You can, you can enhance the culture of that team. Definitely building, building that kind of relationship. Boz, that sounds like a common theme that we hear, right? Care. Like if you care, your athletes can tell when you care and that goes a long way. I I was just going to say that, you know, the, we did an interview with Wes Pyatt not that long ago and, I think, you know, you guys are operating in different worlds. Obviously, he's at the CrossFit affiliate. You're in a collegiate strength and conditioning program. So, you know, if you look at those at face value, sure, they're very different. But I think the tenants that you're both employing are so universal. And it really comes down to that trust between, hey, I'm here for your best interest. And if you are willing to put a little bit in me, I will give you my best and it's going to be mutually beneficial. So I love that. And Wes is a great coach and we've had conversations when we work together and you can, you can tell when you talk to Wes, you can tell how much he's just thinking about how he can make, how can he make his situation with, with, how can he make his athletes or whoever, you know, is at his gym? How can he make it better for them every single day? It's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. He's the man. Is it safe to say, you know, you show up to a new school, you know, they're excited to have you there as a new strength and conditioning coach. You meet, you know, whoever your boss is, one of the head people, and you're like, great news. 
My name is Stefan Roche. We're about to do a lot of CrossFit in this gym. <laughs> and then you guys embrace and they high five and he goes, take it from here, Stefan. Yeah. Whatever you want. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> what, what's, the, what's, what's the connotation in that word? You know, how do you get buy-in, you know, and, and, and slip yourself in the door to whether they know it or not? They're doing great variance, functional movements. We've got some intensity in there. What's the play? So it's funny. Looking at my career, when I was at UCLA in 99 uh, to 2001, I don't think anyone knew what CrossFit was. I mean, I didn't. Um, mm -hmm. So there was no, no impact of CrossFit on what we did. Uh, we did similar stuff. Again, cleans and squats and push-ups and pull-ups and all the movements that you see within CrossFit. Uh, but it was missing some of the great things we see, the competition and then all the all the the named workouts that people latch mm -hmm. on to. That was that was all missing. Go to Indiana and uh that was 2001 to 2003. At the tail end of that, Coach Bergner started sending me these workouts and he said, there's these crazy people up in Santa Cruz. You should see what they're doing. <laughs> and so I'd take the workouts and I had a small group of athletes that, and I adored them to this day. And, you know, if they ever hear this, that, that pole vaulter group at the university of Indiana, incredible, amazing group. One of my best experiences coaching. I mean, talk about a bot in group, um, who would, who would just work their butt off on everything you, you thought would make them better. And they would totally bought in. It was awesome. Well, I started experimenting with them with these CrossFit workouts and they noticed the difference immediately. They were like, where'd you get this? <laughs> what just happened? Yeah. yeah. What are we doing? Whoa. <laughs> this is different. And they loved it. They loved it. And at that time there wasn't uh, a, you know, no one cared about the pole vaulters in terms of like, a coach coming in and surveying them in the weight room. If they were sure. at practice doing what they should be doing, they were great. This is great. No, so you no had one, some freedom, huh? They were a little rogue freedom. element. That's what I had was freedom. Yeah. And, and they were all over it. And they still talk to me these days because a lot of them are still doing CrossFit and they'll be like, like, oh, cool. You were doing, and and uh, I don't know if I get I gave proper credit because I didn't know it was coming from CrossFit. It was coming from sure. for me. So they're like, you were doing CrossFit before CrossFit was doing CrossFit. <laughs> well, no, not, not really, but <laughs> they loved it. And so then I get to USD and we're talking 2007 to 2014-ish. Um, athletes know about CrossFit. I mean, mm -hmm. they, yeah. and, and it's funny because you have coaches, sport coaches, and um, well, not other strength coaches there, but strength coaches in, in, in the community who are pushing down on CrossFit, like we don't like CrossFit. And you have athletes begging to do CrossFit. Like they, mm -hmm. they, they want to do, they are exposed to it and they want more. And it, it it was, it's really that grassroots that CrossFit has always had. Right. So if you looked in the military, right, the generals and the leadership were like, no, CrossFit bad and all this. Yeah. But all your guys are doing it. <laughs> so, right. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. it was like that. Those guys couldn't get enough. And so it was my job to implement it in a way that was beneficial to them. And there, so there are differences when you're training sure. athletes. One thing I never did, and this might seem weird and it just worked out for me. I never taught anyone how to do a kipping pull-up and within two weeks of them getting pretty good at pull-ups and one guy knowing how to kip, 
the rest of them knew how to kill. It's it's kind of like those animal populations where one animal learns something and then the rest of the animals can do it. It was, that's I never awesome. had to teach the different quote because, uh, I mean, and that's the kind of attitude they had. They weren't fearing this. They weren't saying, oh, this is bad for you. They might ask me, hey, someone told me this is bad for my shoulder. I was like, well, let's talk about it. Like, mm-hmm. show me your kip and show me your pull up and show me your shoulder flexibility. And let's talk about what you're feeling when you're doing it. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go from there like we do with any other exercise, but yeah, it was always athletes pushing up for more and coaches pushing down worried. You know, the, the coaches bought all this stuff that they heard, right. That the 10 second sound bite across the right. and- In fairness, I mean, I'll, I'll be charitable here. I think that it is fair if you are responsible for a staple of athletes that you're going to have a natural mm-hmm. degree of, you know, conservative, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, impulse there to yeah. try to keep that group from yeah. wrecking themselves, especially if they're motivated in the wrong direction. Right. So yeah. I get that. Hey everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another very not random podcast. In today's episode, Boz and I catch up with Stefan Rocher and discuss CrossFit as it relates to the world of collegiate strength and conditioning. Not to leave you with a cliffhanger, but this is a two-part interview. So this is part number one, and make sure you tune in next week when we will post the conclusion in part two of our interview with Stefan Rocher.